Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. This morning, I'm joined by Tony Johnson. Tony, wonderful to have you here as part of the conversation. Great to be with you, Melissa. Tony, let me quickly step through some of your bio so the audience know who I'm talking to. So Tony Johnson is an EY partner and until the 30th of June 2021 was the Chief Executive Officer of EY in Oceania. As CEO, Tony led a purposeful and inclusive organisation of over 600 partners and 9,000 people across Australia, New Zealand, Fiji and Papua New Guinea, providing assurance, tax, transaction, strategic technology and business consulting services. That was a mouthful to get out there, Tony. Tony's, very well. roles, <laughs> Tony's roles have included being a member of the Male Champion of Change National Group, the Leadership Council on Cultural Diversity, and the 30% Club Education Working Group. Tony's got three kids, uh, Molly the cat and a famous Labradoodle called Lucy, who I understand um, been been in the Australian newspaper on a number of occasions. Three occasions, including a photo, Melissa. <laughs> Lovely. Tony, fantastic to have you with us. I would just love to start off by asking you, you know, for people in our audience who haven't come across you before, would you give us a little bit of your story, your background, and I guess why you are who you are? Yeah, sure. I'll have a go at it. And Melissa, I'm sure you'll wrap me up if I go a little bit uh, too long. But look, I was born in country Victoria, Sale in, uh, in Gippsland, oldest of three boys. Uh, Mum and dad both grew up uh, locally and they really dedicated their lives to the three boys and providing us every uh, opportunity that was possible. Dad had left school at 15. He started as a mechanic at the local Ford car dealership. And whilst there were different roles over time, moved forward 50 years later from 15, and he retired from there at age uh, 65. Yeah. So uh, I guess you'd have to say there was a passion around uh, cars there, but really his passion was music. He was a drummer, um, jazz preferably, but uh, there wasn't that many opportunities. So there was a lot of old time dancers uh, rolled in there as well. Uh, Mum ran the house. And I guess she's the person who taught and showed me, well, many things, important lessons, I think, in life. And one was empathy being the foundation of, of personal relationships. And I guess to be aware of the impact of my actions and, and what they have on others. And she sort of modelled the calmness and stability that I seek to bring to, to leadership. I had a great childhood. Um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, oldest of three boys. Not a silver spoon upbringing by any um, uh, thinking, but we wanted for nothing. Uh, was privileged in the sense of a really great family, extended family, surrounded by plenty of love um, and support. Life was pretty simple and probably a little bit naive, uh, very much about family, school, sport and friends. And that was the basis for our dinner table conversations. It certainly wasn't about business. It wasn't about the corporate world. It wasn't about world affairs. But I guess I've really reflected on those years and realised 
there were some key learnings that became part of my DNA and, and impacted my approach to, to personal and business life, including leadership. And I guess that some of these are just homespun views, I've got to say, but I have a view that the role of parents is to provide kids with three things, and I call them the three E's. So sometimes I'm a bit less than humble, call them the Johnson three E's, but esteem, experiences, and education. Um, and esteem can't be um, dependent. Esteem's got to be independent to really sort of stand up to the things that, that life throws at you. Experiences, um, they don't necessarily cost money. They can be the old climbing the tree, uh, falling off a slide, and education. But I also say, if you can only do two of the three, do esteem and experiences, don't worry about education. That has been really important for me. And then I think growing up in the country, um, sort of ingrained in me, or you saw it every day, the importance of respect, uh, relationships and resilience. And maybe that respect and relationships, small town, uh, there's no six degrees of separation. There's probably two degrees of separation. The local career club or football club or whatever part of the community you're, you're part of, where you're interacting with two-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 80-year-olds. And so I think that they've been important learnings for me. I left sale for uni uh, in Melbourne and uh, I, I initially I returned home uh, at each break to play cricket and, and footy. And uh, But after a while, I realised, so my eyes started to open to the opportunities and experiences that Melbourne could provide. And particularly that there was these big eight accounting firms and they offered work over the summer break. And they played good money and the work was going to be a lot easier than hay carting, which is what I would have been doing at home, 40 degree heat at the top of a, uh, of a hay shed. Um, so I guess that was my, I applied for vacation work with EY, um, got that job. They came back as a, as a graduate. And then 34 years later, uh, I'm still at uh, EY, lots of different roles and, and opportunities during that period of time. I'm not going to beat dad's tenure of, uh, of, of 50 years but I certainly never expected to be at EY uh, for 34 years. I guess during that time, completed my CA qualification and MBA, worked in London for a year or so, met many fantastic people, worked with great clients, some really interesting work, had leadership roles within Australia um, and through, through Asia PAC. Um, and it's just been a life of uh, continuing to, to learn. So um, I've been really, really lucky and, uh, and privileged, Melissa. What an extraordinary journey to have completed um, 34 years and you're not done yet um, at EY. So congratulations on that, um, firstly. Tony, can I ask, um, and I love so many things about that, and I also love the, um, you know, the three E's. I then picked up the three R's. Yeah, uh, I do think so in threes. I do think in threes, you're right. I'll be keeping an eye out for any more threes <laughs> as we go through the conversation. I would love to ask you about stepping into the CEO role in 2015, I think. Yeah. And I just want to ask as a starting point, do you remember stepping into the role and do you remember how you felt at that point in time? Yeah, I do, um, because it was certainly a significant moment. It was uh, The announcement was made um, in November of 2014 between Melbourne Cup Day and between uh, Oaks Day. So that means it was a Wednesday. And um, uh, in advance, I'd given a lot of thinking to, do I want to take the, the role on or not? Um, but I did feel it was the right time for, for me and, and for the firm. There was, there was a match. But absolutely, I was uh, anxious, uh, petrified, uncertain what I was getting myself um, into. One of my um, first bosses, um, 
who was a really, really old person, like it was 30, um, in my first six months of work had said to me, Tony, um, you should do your CV. And I thought I was going to have the shortest career at EY ever. Uh, he was clearly telling me I needed to be looking somewhere else. But his view was that he was emphasising the importance of learning. Do your CV every six months uh, as a proxy uh, for adding, add something to your CV. And if you can't add anything to your CV in the past six months or can't foresee you're going to in the next six months, make a change. But he was emphasising the importance of continuing to learn and develop. So I think all through my career, uh, that had been part of my um, mantra. I didn't physically sit down and do my CV every six months. But I was I going to ask that. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah, I would reflect every six months, um, but but I probably would um, put something to writing maybe every couple of years as to what skills I'd learn. And I was I was um, I wasn't driven by this, but it was certainly if it wasn't front of mind, it was very close to front of mind. What am I learning at the moment, and what am I going to learn uh, going forward? Is it of a technical nature? Is it dealing with people? Is it leadership? Is it client relationship? Um, there, there could be any number of things where you learn. So. Coming back to the CEO role, this was another opportunity uh, to learn, to push myself to, to challenge. And I'd say particularly the first six months was as challenging. Sometimes recency theory can take over because COVID's been fun as well. But I would say, uh, certainly from a leadership perspective, that first six months, I did really push myself. Um, underpinning that was understanding uh, who you are, um, the impact you have on others, what makes me tick, what makes others tick. I had spent quite a bit of time thinking around my um, leadership attributes or my leadership brand or what I wanted them to be. So I certainly took that into, uh, into the role and was comfortable that if I could deliver on those leadership attributes, that would make a positive difference to EY, the people in EY, the, uh, our clients and, and the community uh, more broadly. But no, it was definitely a, an anxious time. What do you mean when you said you pushed yourself for the first six months? What did that look like? Yeah, I was really keen uh, not to waste that first 100 days to create momentum. Um, and I felt we were a really, really good firm. I felt, not just felt and knew, that we had really strong values, a great culture. We were very people-centric uh, organisation, which I'm proud of and, and love to be part of. We had great people, we had great skills, we had great clients, but I felt that there was um, just something a little bit lacking and I felt we needed to be more bold and confident if we were going to achieve our full potential as individuals and, and as a group. Mm -hmm. And so to start that uh, bold and confident journey to be more distinctive really required some impetus in the last in the first period of time. And so when I say I pushed myself, was pushing myself in, in thinking, but I was also pushing myself in the hours that you do. I spent a lot of time uh, in front of people, partners, uh, in forums, um, town hall meetings, and that's tiring and challenging. I really enjoy it. I'm an extrovert by nature, so I get energy from it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean on uh, some mornings you don't wake up and think, wow, I've got to, I'm, I'm doing that presentation three times. I need to be up for it every time. My role is to inspire and motivate as best I can. And um, I can't let one of these opportunities uh, miss or uh, create a bit of a, a chink, if you like, in the, the plan for us to be more bold and confident and be more distinctive. Tony, how would you describe your brand? I love 
the the comment you made about being aware about your impact on others and thinking about who you are as a leader. So mm. what's what what was your brand? What did you kind of arrive yeah. at at that point? I, I guess um, you know that comes from those reflection periods, and it's amazing. Uh, although, so the brand that I uh, aspired to, partly because of my experiences, who I saw as great leaders, were to be was to be accessible, uh, authentic, and fair. So accessible was about being visible. It was about being approachable. It was about being responsive. Um, it was about being engaged. Uh, and I felt that was sort of sat pretty well with me and leaders that I'd um, really work well with displayed those attributes. Authenticity was around um, what you see is what you get. And I guess it's a bit of a simplicity uh, point there. And then fairness really was around how you deal with um, people um, in, in the main, whether that be clients, people within the firm or community more broadly. So that were the three that were really important to me. And maybe there's a, um, at, at the same time, um, we, EY, were, were really launching our purpose of building a better working world and spent a lot of time understanding what my purpose was so that we could have discussions with all our people about each one of us understanding what our personal purpose was and I hope aligning it to what EY's purpose was of building a better working world. I mean, it's interesting when I started as a graduate and many did, being told the what and how of what you're doing was enough. That's all we, we needed. But thankfully, I think people now ask the question and really need to know what's the why? Or yeah. What's the why of why am I doing what I'm doing? So I think that fed into it. So this fairness point um, caused me to reflect um, on... Uh, my childhood and back to I mentioned sport in in our introduction and uh, I had you know the chance to to lead some uh, just junior cricket teams for example but junior sport's amazing because you've got kids with such a wide variation of will and such a wide variation of skill yeah. and I can remember being responsible for deciding who was going to bat and bowl in the cricket team on Saturday and be Friday night and I'd be laying on the carpet watching the TV a mum would stick her head over my shoulder and perhaps say something along the line like, I don't think little Johnny got much of a go last week, which would prompt in me, little Johnny needs to have a bat or a bowl uh, this week. And so I started to come to the fore that maybe fairness of opportunity was something that was really important to me. And so that's why um, I guess it, it, all these things come together in interconnected ways, but the purpose of EY, what was my purpose? What's my leadership brand? fairness uh, emerged there. So I've used accessibility, authenticity and fairness, I guess, as guide rails uh, for me. Am I living up to those attributes, which I'm the one that's determined are important for me? Am I living up to them? Um, uh, am I leading in that manner? Thanks, Tony. I'm going to come back, we'll circle back around to fairness. But before I do that, I would just love to ask this being aware of your impact on others, I think, is, is so important from a leadership point of view. And in one of the earlier interviews, um, someone said that they've seen a lot of people who won't reach their ultimate potential because they're not aware of the impact they have on others. They're lacking self-awareness. Mm. I just wonder if you, if I asked you, do you have, and I know you think in threes, so I'll keep it in threes, <laughs> what would be the three things that you think everyone should ask themselves um, to improve their own leadership? Yeah. Um, well, I think you'd, or uh, well, I might go for, no, but what sort of leader uh, uh, do you want to be is a pretty fundamental question. Yeah. Um, 
what are the attributes that already make you a good leader? And are you staying true to them? So I did get three there. What sort of leader do you want to be? What are the attributes that already make you a good leader? And are you staying true to them? I think they'd be the three. So it is about reflection and um, not letting things happen by happenstance, I guess, by in an ad hoc manner. I think it being, but discipline might be too strong of a word, but, uh, uh, but having an understanding, I think, is really important. Okay. Thank you for that. So let's... let's um go back to fairness so the one of the three legs in the stool of your leadership brand when you and I first met um, and and we were talking about gender diversity in particular I know Mm. that diversity is a broad subject but we're uh, my conversations are focused primarily on gender yeah you said to me that you you almost became an accidental DNI zealous tell me about that yeah um, and it's actually a nice link to some of the comments I just made, but coming into the CEO role, my focus was on this boldness, confidence and, and distinctiveness. DNI was part of the overall plan, but it was not anywhere near as front and centre as the distinctiveness or the, the bold and confident piece uh, was. But as I started to engage with people, and particularly at town halls, uh, where you may have um, you know, anywhere from 100 people in, in Christchurch, to 3,000 in the Sydney um, uh, Opera House. Very different, same presentation. But what really um, intrigued initially, but then amazed me was the impact, uh, the number of people that would come up to you after a presentation when you had referenced DNI and some either initiatives or some roles that I was taking in uh, the DNI space. And it became, um, clear to me and maybe I was slow to the party that the role I had um, was one where you could make an impact that you could leverage it and it was so important to people little things were so important to those um, I'll call it minority groups it could could have been gender I mean as, as, as sad as it is to refer to gender as a minority group and perhaps we can come back to that but um, but also culturally and linguistically diverse uh, people and, and so that was a real realization. At the same time, the, around about the same time, the marriage quality uh, debate uh, was on. And, and it's almost crazy to think about it in 2021. Back then, it was actually quite controversial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, just thinking through, well, what's EY stance? What's my stance on it? I also remember talking to my uh, kids at a Sunday night dinner who perhaps at the time um, might have been something like 17, 15, 13, or 18, 16, 14, and just, uh, just raising with them what did they think about support for marriage equality. And I just got the look back say, yeah, what are you talking about, Dad? And that was a realisation that this is about the, the decision we're making. So we, we did come out very, uh, very supportive and vocally and visibly in support of um, uh, marriage equality. Uh, because it was this one element of it was it's clear that we're this is the, the future. The kids were so much more egalitarian, generally speaking, than what the generations uh, before were. So that was then what happened was I saw EY's brand as being an inclusive organisation. It wasn't just LGBTI that were attracted to EY because of support of marriage equality, but it was anyone who wanted to work in an inclusive uh, organisation. So that came together at the same time as this impact with town halls. And I started to realise how, uh, one, important it was, but two, the opportunity we had to make a difference and a difference for individuals' uh, uh, lives and bring it back. And that included 
gender and of course women. So you did make some um, pretty impressive improvements in terms of you know percentage of female partners. I understand what what were some of the things that that you achieved? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not proud to say where we were, but where we were was about twelve percent or so of our partner population were women. So we did set a target pretty immediately of getting to thirty percent. You think surely that can't be too hard? We've been recruiting fifty percent women uh, into the firm for, for as long as I can, for 30 years. Why are we, and typically we knew that women were roughly still in that 50% percentage after the 10 year mark, but they weren't becoming partners or they weren't, we weren't making uh, as many women partners. So 30% was the target. We did get there. Uh, admittedly, it took us a year uh, longer than, than expected, but I was really proud uh, to get to that point. It was harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, perhaps we'll come back to why that was the, the let's, case. Let's, let's talk about that. I think it's a perfect time to talk about that. Yeah, I, many different uh, reasons. And I guess we could, uh, economic terms, you could almost decide the demand side and the supply side. Um, so, so I guess I was, I found this whole discussion um, around the why really um, interesting in that I tended to approach it so, so for those that would question, why do we need targets? And, and thankfully, that was becoming a, a smaller group because um, the evidence all showed that you, um, evidence could show that business will be better, the ideas and the solutions we come up for clients will be better as a result of diversity of thought, and that includes having gen gender um, better represented uh, than where it was. But I found three reasons that would either... Um, cause people to believe and to act because part of my role was to ask all our partners. So at that time, let's call it 88% men, they needed to play a big role in this, whether it be mentoring, coaching, uh, sponsoring. And I found that the, the three reasons for people to get on board, one was either moral, it's the right thing to do. Two was personal, my wife, my daughter, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I want a fair life uh, for them. Well, the third one was the business with better outcomes, the ones I've touched on. And rarely did I get dispute on those three, but I do remember doing, I talked about town halls, but partner meetings, and I may have done, let's say 15, 20 partner meetings of about 20 to 30 partners. And every one of those, and, and talking about DNI and in particular our gender targets and our gender target for women. And every one of those, there was a mixed audience, men and women, and the discussions went well. The very what was interesting to me was the very last meeting I'd done of these 20 meetings was the first that had only men in it. And it was the only one that I got, I'll call it real push, well, it was pushback. I'm not quite sure why. And some of the historical, I'll call them 1950s type arguments being brought forward. What that told me um, was there was a lot of uh, uh, passive resistance there and that we really needed to up the ante. And we did that through the targets rolling through to leaders um, and, and, and being accountable for it. Measurement, of course, was fundamental um, uh, to improving. So to get to 30%, really comfortable, but took longer than expected. But it also had to match with other things we did, um, not just at partners, but closing the gender pay gap for, for all our people, which you know, on first blush, and I would have said, no, we don't have a gender pay gap. But when we first looked at it, was double digit for like-for-like -like roles. And we got that down to zero uh, for like-for-like -like roles. Um, the big challenge we've had is when it comes to partners and uh, closing the gender pay gap. So we do a lot of work on 
on it, lots of data, lots of analysis. And if you like the like for like roles, we can use the data to get that right and comfortable that we are at zero pay gap there. But what we still don't have is enough or the, the, the appropriate representation of women in the most senior roles within the firm. So that's the most senior roles within the partnership, if I can describe okay. it that. And those senior roles um, uh, uh, are recognised with the highest, the higher REM. So if you're not in the senior roles, you're not going to get the higher REM. So how do we fix that? And so that's been a challenge um, that, that we're really embracing. We've now got 50% in, um, of our leadership team um, are represented by men and by owned by women. Um, but it takes a little while to get people to the seniority um, of uh, taking on the, the senior roles. But we've made lots of progress. The, um, uh, we've got plenty more to do, but the, the foundation is there. Tony, do you think it's a very interesting comment you make, um, and, and not surprising, but that um, it was when there was a, a group of all males with you that they felt comfortable, I guess, to um, let out some of the um, you know, thoughts and feelings around the targets that you were setting and what you were looking at. Do you feel like there's still pockets of that or, or do you feel like we've moved past it? Oh, I think we've made progress, but I've got no doubt there's still pockets. Um, yeah, with with without um, without doubt, um, and you know that's part of change. And and unfortunately, we are changing hundred years of hundreds of years of, of behaviour. We'd like to get there quicker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it does it does take uh, time. But continuing to come back to the the uh, moral, the personal, the business reason, and really asking a question of, well, why wouldn't you want the best or optimal answer um, to your, uh, for each individual, for your team, for your community, for your organisation, your country, the world? Um, I mean, they're pretty fundamental uh, questions. So I do have some real confidence that we will get there, um, but it's uh, we're not there yet and we're not going as fast as, as we would all like to go. Um, thank you for the work that you've done in that and also for your honesty in the conversation with it. You know, it's broadly when we look at women in leadership positions, we haven't, and these are UN statistics and they're from 2019, mm. but they basically say that women hold about 28% of managerial positions globally, which is broadly the same as 1995. Yeah. Now, you've made some good moves, um, you know, more significant moves than that, but it, it seems to have stalled and I just wonder, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Um, so firstly, you know, we've talked about the, I guess the significance of change from where history has been. And um, th these are the softer sort of pieces, Melissa, but we can't expect to be straight line um, in, our, in our progress. It'll go at different speeds. Um, you mentioned I'm a member of the 30% uh, club and uh, you know, in the ASX 200, we're now above 30%, 30%. And in fact, in the UK, where the 30% club was formed, um, it, that was to drive 30% representation of women on FTSE uh, boards, and it's got to that point. So maybe the club needs to change um, its name or the organisation needs to change its name. But uh, I think more fundamentally, I think there's, um, there's some structural issues still in place. And whether that goes to flexibility, the, the higher proportion of caring uh, responsibilities that women have vis-a-vis -vis, uh, men, um, 
I do think, uh, sorry, I think a big one to call out would be sponsorship. I think we've focused a lot on mentoring and coaching um, and, 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 and sponsorship is not a new concept, but I don't think we've embedded it to the same extent that mentoring and coaching um, has been put in place. I mean, I really enjoyed and learned a lot and was challenged by being involved with the Male Champions of Change, or now called the uh, Champions of Change Coalition, and taking ideas from other organisations, because we certainly didn't have a mortgage on all the great ideas. We did some really good stuff, which we're very happy to share, but we mm. also benefited from what other organisations would do. But I do think where we are all, I described the gender pay gap issue before and how we went from like-for-like um, -like roles at 10 to zero, but what amazed me was that the war wasn't won, the battle was won, and each, next year you'd come around thinking, well, we don't really need to worry about that, but there would be a spike back towards uh, bias towards men. Mm -hmm. So you've got to stay really um, vigilant in respect of it. And so I do think there's a danger of either some fatigue um, coming into the drive for, for, for better uh, representation of women or some complacency. We've got to X 30% and so let's stop. Brings me back to the sponsorship point. I mean, the sponsorship, it's all nice to mentor and coach, really important. Um, but actually sponsoring some, sponsoring a woman into a role, particularly one that's got profit and loss responsibility. We hear that time and time again. Can so-and-so, can, can a certain woman be um, appropriate for a role? Look, they look pretty good. Uh, they've got the skills, et cetera. Oh, but they haven't run a P&L. So clearly we need to sponsor women into more roles with profit and loss responsibility. One sounds quite tactical, but I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, that profit and loss and CFO, they're the two key roles that are typically drawn upon for CEO succession. So um, I think you're absolutely right in that regard. I just wanted to ask, um, what did you notice or did you notice a difference in in anything as you saw the number of partners shift from 12% to, to the 30% that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, and, and I might also include the change in the leadership team going from sort of 30% to 50% yeah. uh, women. Um, better discussions, um, when I say better discussions, more holistic. And I'm going to run the risk of stereotyping here, but it's, but it's off my experiences, um, would be that uh, men in leadership meetings are more likely to drive for the, a quick answer, a short-term answer, let's get a fix and move on. Um, I found that we were having better medium and long-term discussions, which were more holistic, particularly, um, I think, around the people dimension. I mean, obviously, women can bring a, uh, a deeper, broader and better perspective about women uh, in the workforce and in our clients, that if there was a predominantly male um, group, that wouldn't, wouldn't occur. I think what's really interesting, you know, I mentioned the 30% club and the reason the 30% club is called or is set at 30% and the goal was to get 30% uh, women representation on those boards. But the studies show that if minority groups, and this is the, you know, the great shame, that minority groups don't have 30% representation then their voices aren't heard. So when you get to 30% representation of women, either in our partnership or on our leadership team, the voices are heard. And um, even though there might've been some amazing women with great ideas, I think there is still a case 
of, unless there's the appropriate representation, then those voices, ideas, solutions are not being heard. Mm. I guess I also felt there was probably more time for, uh, there's more time maybe for dwelling. But my first point was that men would drive to, to, to let's get through, the idea is to get through the agenda as quickly as we can, as opposed to let's actually sit back and think what it is we want to achieve and spend more time to come up with the right answers. So in my view, really po absolutely positive um, and so important that we made each of those moves and hopefully we can continue to go further. I wanted to pick up the comment you made around 30% um, and people finding their voice. One of the um, sort of questions that I was curious about in terms of starting this series when I did the first one was, um, as a mentor, receiving briefs for females that talked about she needs help finding her voice. And, and that intrigued me very much. I wanted to ask you about this term gender deafness. And gender deafness, um, it's, been, it's not a new term, but I heard it recently in Annabelle Crabb's um, series, Misrepresented. And I think it was Julie Bishop who was talking about it. And she talked about being the only female um, in various uh, roles that she was in. And how, and, and this is this is often shared that a female will say something and it's it's not picked up um, unless somebody kind of references it or hops onto it. And yet the same comment can be brought up by a male, um, and all of a sudden it's a it's a wonderful idea. Have you seen this? Have you? I mean, can you see this as not being the the so-called minority in the room. It's just, I just would love your thoughts on it. Uh, I've definitely seen it within EY, within um, clients at executive level, clients at board uh, level. And typically, uh, you know, we've seen thankfully the greater representation of women certainly on, on boards, but um, yeah, I, I think um, it, it's so uh, disrespectful uh, really because they're, they're, notwithstanding it being a, a, a great idea, there's some part of history, and I haven't studied it enough uh, detail, or some in, in people's DNA, well, that's a hobby horse. Uh, that's a passion. That's not important. Um, that's not linked to our overall strategy. Um, and somehow that voice isn't heard. And I do believe it's about, uh, and the role of other men, or of men and other women, is to work to have that, um, gender deafness in this case um, un, unmuted um, because or undeafened um, and you know I think it just goes back to that fairness of opportunity it's not about roles it's also fairness to have your views heard listened debated and, and respected um, I think the representation piece is fundamental um, to addressing the gender deafness piece and um, you also mentioned something that I think is also really common about potentially having to, to really convince women to take roles on. Mm. Um, can we talk about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a truism that uh, women are so, uh, you know, uh, not critical, so uh, much of the view that they need to have all the attributes for a role in order to put their hand up. And, you know, and I found this to be true that if men have got three out of eight attributes, they think they're a shoe in for the role. Why haven't I got it? I'm not sure why you're even running the process. Women can have seven of the eight attributes and still feel, 
I don't think I should put my hand up. I don't have one of the attributes. So the, the I found the um, figurative wrestling of people into roles is being, um, it's been it's been eye opening really. Um, because you see an individual who's got all the attributes, all the skills, has ambition, um, and yet when presented with an opportunity, immediately says, I'm not sure, I don't think it's for me. And so I would say it takes four or five conversations, it has taken four or five conversations to get a woman to take a role for which they're perfectly suited, um, whereas a man, it'll take uh, it'll ha take half a conversation, yes, they're ready to roll. And, yeah, I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, role models uh, are important, which feed into, I can see someone has done that before, so I, I can have the confidence that my skills will uh, be suitable for the role. Um, that the sponsorship piece, that this is coming as a surprise. There hasn't been mentor coaching sponsorship in the lead up that says you will be uh, in this role, or we're aiming for you to be in this role in one year, two year, three, five years time. Um, you know, I can think I was so um, fortunate in my career that certain individuals took an interest and would say, I can see you being X or Y in five or 10 years time. And that's amazing to have that light on the hill. I think one of the reasons that we have this issue with women accepting roles is it can come as a bit of a surprise. I haven't had time to digest it, to process it and to get comfortable um, with it. So there'll be, there'll be many factors in play but it's real and for male leaders or female leaders, women leaders, I think being so conscious of it and that if you get an initial pushback or reluctance, doesn't mean the person isn't suited for job, doesn't want the job or won't do a great job in the role. I think that's fantastic. And you, I reflected as you were talking then that um, that was my own experience. So five years before I was offered the CEO role, yeah. Um, I was sitting with not my predecessor, the CEO before that, and, you know, just over a cup of coffee. And he said to me, you know, you could do that one day, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and there was one other thing that he said that was really powerful to me in that conversation. Yeah. It was a comment where he said, um, he said, it's just really important that you know that everyone, when they step into a leadership role like that, everyone is sitting there waiting for people to work out they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it just took so much pressure off. So I just wonder in your, you know, have you got some real success stories of, um, and I know you're still at EY, so you probably can't call them out um, specifically, but they might know who they are. But, you know, some real stories of people that you took it upon yourself to sort of sponsor and, and, and how that happened effectively. And I think that's good for other men to hear those examples. Yeah, um, I won't mention names, but yeah, look, I am really, you've got to really be careful. You sound proud, sounds like you've done all the hard, or you might have done all the hard work. That's not, the, the individual has done all the hard work, has all the skills. You're just playing with the little bit um, to to um, open the gate, which that's all, the, the gate that they, they're shutting or not opening themselves mm -hmm. to, to get there. Um, but just uh, overwhelming pride in the people that have gone on and, are still going on to achieve their full potential. Um, the feedback from whether it be client roles, senior client roles or roles within the firm is an amazing uh, one. And, and um, I think a number of times appointments have been made and uh, I might get some feedback to say, I'm not sure you went, got the right one there or um, uh, really hmm, a bit surprised, particularly male, that I didn't get the job. But what I will say is 
Six months later, many men in that particular case have come back and said, wow, I can see why that appointment was made. Absolutely you know, amazing. So there's a bit of a point around creating visibility for people um, uh, as well, so that there isn't that, why, why would that person get the role? Why would that woman get that uh, woman get the role? Um, and I think it's worked well. We've been, I guess, fortunate to represent society, but you can't do this yourself. In the example of client work, clients have got to be willing and prepared um, and understand that whoever we're putting forward, male or female, is absolutely right for the job. And I've not never had a pushback in, in that regard, but I suspect 30 years ago, there could have been a uh, uh, pushback. But clients have been so supportive in, in, in that way, as they as they should have been as well, because the person was, was absolutely uh, uh, cream of the crop. Do you find one of the other sort of conversations um, that I hear in talking to women is, you know, sometimes there'll come a point where, and it could well be um, if they've decided to have a family, it could be when they have that family that that point occurs where um, suddenly they're juggling a whole lot more, uh, their values don't quite match where they are, or, or maybe they do, but just momentarily they don't. And therefore they opt out. And you see a lot of people heading off and starting up their own businesses and maybe following, following an entrepreneurial track or going to a, a smaller business. Do you guys, do you feel like you have a problem where you start off with 50% roughly coming through and then you start to see some fallout? Uh Yes, yeah, that's been the issue of where things start to fall. So we've done a lot of work over the years as to why, and there's many reasons for it. Yeah. But role models would be uh, absolutely one. It is not possible to have a family and either because of the nature of the work uh, or the volume of the work to, to be a partner. And thankfully, we've been able to dispel, at least in a number of cases, I won't, I'm not going to uh, suggest that we have that resolved across the business, but things which are visible are when you appoint partners who are currently on maternity leave or, or paternity leave and we had both that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago um, but I'm you know, proud to be involved in a number of cases where that has, has occurred so there's one working with the uh, referring to women so that the women um, to have the confidence that they um, that there's enough flexibility in the workforce uh, in the in the workplace and the nature of the work that they will be supported um, so that makes a big difference. One story I thought I might come back to is I mentioned the um, meeting with the male partners and I got the pushback of on, um, on why we had uh, targets for women partners and were there issues there, particularly around taking maternity leave, having children take maternity leave. And um, I'm not sure whether I got this analogy right, but my response was to put to the group um, Imagine, it's quite timely given the Olympics, but imagine that we had someone within the firm who was so talented at uh, athletics that they had the opportunity to go to the, uh, the Olympics. Would we allow them a year off to prepare for the uh, Olympics so they could do their best and everyone nodded? So imagine that that athlete was so strong that they could go to multiple Olympics, so maybe two Olympics or three Olympics, but each time they went, they'd require a year off um, to uh, prepare, to train, to do the best. Absolutely, we would. Right. Um, so what would that mean for people that take a year off for, for, for caring responsibilities? Why would we see that any differently? I'm not trying to understate the achievements of Olympians, but um, you know, I think that got rang some bells with people as to 
um, the decisions that we make. And so we talked about the, if you like, the, the, the women feeling comfortable to go down this path, but also men understanding that the value that people will provide will be over a long time and the um, the a one-year um, uh, other responsibilities, one, people can learn, develop, et cetera, but it's such a small um, investment to make for such a long-term um, game. Um, I really like that, Tony. I think that is a really terrific example. Um, before I move away from diversity, what do you think is the one question we should be asking about diversity? Um, the one thing about... Uh, I think it's... Um, why do you want the best possible answer? Back to my only comment. Do you want the best possible outcome for your team, your the community, uh, your your family, your business, uh, Australia, the, your country, the, the world? And if not, why not? Yeah. Uh, that would be better the way I'd tackle it, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's circle back around then to, um, to yourself. If you look back on your time as CEO, is there anything you'd tackle differently? I don't think there'd be anything I'd tackle differently. Um, I think when you stand back and the amount of thought you put into uh, certain, I guess, sensitive or controversial matters, when you look back now, you think that was just a no-brainer. Um, so I think what you'd do differently is you'd go go, go quicker um, and maybe go harder on, on key issues and maybe... Um, and often that parlays into uh, people in roles and leadership roles. And I think I would be, uh, to the extent you find that someone as a leader isn't inspiring, motivating or living our values uh, or leading in the way we'd like. And thankfully, you don't have a, so that's not widespread, but you'd make those changes quicker as well. But, uh, but otherwise, um, no, the, 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 the broad track, very, very comfortable that... Um, uh, that was the right track. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, 34 years at EY, I just wonder, do you think that the current generation should aspire to that sort of tenure? Uh, I'm not sure I'd set tenure as the uh, objective, but I come back to those earlier remarks about continuing to learn um, and adding something to your CV every six months. I've been able to add something to my CV every six months. I've enjoyed what I've done. I've been continuing to learn um, over time. The ability to make an impact, whether that be with clients, communities, or people, has increased. Um, so I might flip it the other way. Why wouldn't you stay with an EY for 34 years? Um, providing those criteria are being met, why not? Very good advice around that CV. I, um, I really like that. So... Um, why do you think you've achieved the success you have, Tony? Oh, I think I've been really uh, you know, fortunate and lucky and privileged to start with you know, parents and, and DNA and um, back to my three E's. I was uh, fortunate that my parents um, uh, helped create esteem in me, uh, independent esteem. Um, I had experiences and an education. I think they're fundamental. Maybe, oh, I'm going to break the rule here. If I was going to throw the fourth one in, would be, again, nature or nurture, but 
and working on emotional intelligence. So maybe that's the fourth uh, E and trying to understand yourself, your impact on others. Um, and then looking at the way others engage in the organization, their impact on the organization. Um, yeah, that'd be the, the, uh, the key ones. A lot of good luck in there. So my final question that I ask everybody is from your perspective, Tony, what does brave feminine leadership look like and does it need to change? Yeah, um, for me, brave feminine leadership would be, um, I think being yourself um, would be number one. Um, having, yeah, be yourself, but I want to put a bit of a caveat on that. Continue to learn um, and you know, build rapport, actively listen, trust your emotional intelligence. Um, doing. So uh, and then I would say step forward, uh, do put your hand up, be bold. Um, you come back to have the, the confidence that your skills are adequate for a role. Um, continue to, to learn and, and yeah, uh, step up and challenge yourself. Um, and maybe the last one, don't give up. Tony, I just need to change. Sorry, was the, the second part of your question, Alyssa. Um, need to change, yes. Yeah, does it need to change? Um, oh, I think those uh, attributes are, are pretty constant. Um, but look, the to facilitate that, there's no simple way to do those three things and, and this will be the outcome because the world's continually changing. Every country organisation is um, different. I mean, I think we've got a lot of positives. Um, hopefully, you know, we continue to move to more flexibility as a result of COVID. We've demonstrated that. Actually, on the flip side, though, that we know women are more negatively impacted by COVID or have been than men. So there's a, you know, a bit of a um, match off there. Um, we keep working on the sponsorship piece. So I guess it's not just for, it shouldn't be seen as just for women um, to demonstrate brave feminine leadership, but it should be for, for men and women to support coach, mentor, sponsor brave feminine leadership. So we've all got a role to play. And, and maybe I'll close by saying we've all got a role to play and it's so rewarding if uh, it can make a difference or an impact in, in, in this way. Tony, thank you so much for being so willing to add your voice to the conversation. Um, it's absolutely right. You know, it's um, we've got to tackle these challenges from all sorts of ways. And I think importantly, we have to keep talking about it and calling it out that, um, yeah. that there's still room for improvement. So it's been a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you. So on behalf of the audience, I just want to say thank you so much. No problems, Melissa. Great to be with you. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.